You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 417 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall with the last episode, we set the stage for the Battle of Bristow Station. The October 1863 campaign that led up to the battle was primarily one of maneuver between the two armies, which were still recovering from the trauma of the massive bloodletting at Gettysburg. At this time, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia was missing James Longstreet's Corps, which was on detached duty with Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee. In fact, in September, Longstreet and most of his troops had arrived in northwest Georgia just in time to take part in the Battle of Chickamauga. But despite the fact that his army was reduced in numbers, Lee decided to go over to the offensive after he found out that the Federals had also sent troops to the Western Theater of the War to try to help the Army of the Cumberland hold on to Chattanooga after its defeat at the Battle of Chickamauga. Yep, George Meade, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, lost 11th Corps and 12th Corps when the powers that be in Washington decided to send them by rail to Tennessee to aid the effort to hold on to Chattanooga. Even after those two corps were sent west, the Army of the Potomac still outnumbered the Army of Northern Virginia, but now the odds weren't quite as long as they had been before, and so Lee decided to strike Meade a blow by trying to turn the Yankee Army's right flank. And that's pretty much where we left things last time. Lee's plan was reminiscent of his campaign against John Pope the year before, which culminated in the Battle of Second Manassas. Here, Lee envisioned a rapid movement by Dick Ewell's Corps and A.P. Hill's Corps around the Federal right and into Meade's rear. Then the Army of the Potomac would be hemmed in between the Rappahannock and Rapidan Rivers and would be forced to fight the Confederates on ground of Lee's choosing. Robert E. Lee set his plan in motion on the morning of Saturday, October 10th, when rebel cavalry under Jeb Stewart's direct command splashed across the Robertson River at Russell's Ford on the Union Army's right flank. The Confederate horsemen overwhelmed the Yankee cavalry pickets posted there, 
But three hours later, Stuart and the two brigades of troopers with him found themselves stalled in front of the village of James City by tenacious fighting on the part of Kilpatrick's Federal Cavalry and Union Infantry from Brigadier General Henry Price's 3rd Corps Division. Meanwhile, behind Stuart, the columns of Confederate infantry from Ewell's and Hill's Corps, which were to march quickly in an arc around the Yankee Army's right flank, instead found themselves laboring on poor roads and struggling to cross numerous swollen creeks. They bivouacked that evening after having covered only 10 miles. By mid-afternoon on October 10th, George Meade, from the reports coming in from his right, realized that the rebel army was moving to outflank him. In response, Meade issued orders, rearranging his various corps. Second Corps moved to strengthen the right flank, with Third Corps to the second's left, and Fifth Corps positioned near Culpeper as a central reserve. By day's end, three-fifths of the Army of the Potomac's infantry and one-third of its cavalry were positioned near James City, facing the Confederate threat. But by the next day, Sunday, the 11th, Meade had thought better of staying in place to face the Confederate threat. He feared a wide flanking move to get into his rear, which was, in fact, exactly what Robert E. Lee was trying to do. And so, rather than remain on the far side of the Rappahannock and get trapped in the constrictive V of land between the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers, Meade decided not to take any chances and instead acted quickly to pull the army back and withdraw across the Rappahannock. On the 11th, one of Meade's aides, Lieutenant Colonel Theodore Lyman, witnessed the army, quote, all busy, packing and striking tents. All the wagons went ahead. The 1st and 6th Corps followed on the south side of the railroad, and the 2nd and 5th on the north, while the 3rd went more to the north still, crossing at Freeman's Ford on the Rappahannock River. As Lyman's words indicate, as Meade pulled back up the line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, marching for the north bank of the Rappahannock, he kept the army well closed up, with each infantry corps within supporting distance of the others. Meanwhile, John Buford, who had been on a reconnaissance below the Rapidan River with his Federal Cavalry Division, rejoined the Army of the Potomac. Buford slipped away from his pursuers after some brisk fighting with Fitz Lee's rebel horsemen near Morton's Ford. Kilpatrick's Union horsemen had abandoned their position at James City that morning and pulled back toward Culpeper. As Jeb Stewart's rebel cavalry pressed forward in hot pursuit of Kilpatrick, Buford was still being chased by Fitz Lee. The opposing cavalry forces all came together at Brandy Station, the same spot they had clashed back in June at the start of the Gettysburg Campaign. At one point, Federal and Confederate horsemen, on parallel routes, raced for the high ground near the station. Buford's troopers barely won the race. When Kilpatrick's force found itself cut off, only a bold charge led by George Custer and his brigade 
allowed Kilpatrick to join Buford. By nightfall, the Federal cavalry had managed to pull back from Brandy Station and safely follow the Union infantry across the Rappahannock. While opposing cavalry fought at Brandy Station on the 11th, Ewell's and Hill's Confederate infantry were able to cover only another 10 miles that day. George Meade had managed to withdraw safely behind the Rappahannock, and so on Monday, October 12th, Robert E. Lee adjusted his original plan, and while still aiming to move his forces around the Yankees' right, now set his sights on crossing the Rappahannock upriver and getting into Meade's rear. Again, Yule's corps would make the inner arc of a circle, taking a more direct route toward the Federal right flank, moving along the Culpeper-Warrenton turnpike. A.P. Hill's corps, marching farther to the west, would circumscribe the outer arc of the circle as it also moved around the Yankees' flank. Meade, on the 12th, decided to send a strong force back across the Rappahannock in an attempt to get a clearer picture of what the Confederates were currently up to. He sent a combined cavalry infantry force made up of Buford's division of horsemen and the 2nd, 5th, and 6th Corps. The force, which crossed the river and moved down the railroad to Brandy Station, was under the overall command of 6th Corps commander John Sedgwick. As Meade was pushing half his army to Brandy Station, the Confederates, as we said, were spending the day closing up on the Rappahannock and readying for having another go at pushing around the Federals' right flank. Leading the way, the rebel horsemen under Stuart clashed with David McMurtry Gregg's Union cavalry at the village of Jeffersonton, two miles from the Rappahannock. It wasn't until 4 p.m. on the afternoon of the 12th that the Confederate cavalry ejected the Yankee horsemen from Jeffersonton and moved up to the river. There, at White Sulphur Springs, Gregg's troopers made another stand, trying to keep the rebels from crossing the bridge there. But with artillery support, four of Stuart's regiments splashed across the shallows on either side of the bridge and forced the Yankees to flee, clearing the way so that before nightfall, a brigade of infantry from Ewell's Corps was able to march over to the north bank of the Rappahannock and secure the crossing. However, although the route across the Rappahannock and around Meade's right flank was now apparently open, Robert E. Lee decided to have the rest of the rebel infantry bivouac below the river rather than push them forward in the dark. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As Greg's Federal Cavalry, after ceding the Sulphur Springs Bridge to the Rebels, fell back eight miles to Fayetteville, they uncovered the right flank of Third Corps at Freeman's Ford, farther to the south. But that was not the worst of it, because for his part, Jeb Stewart pushed on that evening through the darkness with two brigades of rebel cavalry to the town of Warrenton, which lay six miles northeast of the Rappahannock, and therefore six miles behind the Army of the Potomac's right flank. That night, when George Meade learned of the Confederate crossing upriver, he quickly issued orders recalling Sedgwick from Brandy Station, and that strong force of cavalry and infantry rejoined the rest of the army on the north side of the Rappahannock. On the 13th, with Confederate cavalry now in his right rear, and rebel infantry probably not far behind, Meade decided to abandon his position along the Rappahannock and continue withdrawing northeast, up the line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. And so that day, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Corps were ordered to cover the area west of Warrenton Junction in the direction of the Confederate threat, while 5th and 6th Corps proceeded up the railroad to Warrenton Junction itself to form a reserve. As for the Federal Cavalry, Buford was tasked with guarding the thousands and thousands of wagons that formed the Army, Corps, and Divisional trains, while Gregg's and Kilpatrick's horsemen were posted to watch the Army's right and rear. The afternoon of the 13th saw Meade decide to continue withdrawing up the railroad from the vicinity of Warrenton Junction toward Bristow Station, 22 miles up the line from the Rappahannock River. As the infantry of the Army of the Potomac continued to trudge northeast, it marched in two columns. As the Federals continued withdrawing up the line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, and as Dick Yule's and A.P. Hill's Confederate infantry continued marching forward, Robert E. Lee sought definite intelligence on the Yankees' position and intentions, so he sent Jeb Stewart and his cavalry on a scout toward Catlett Station, north of Warrenton Junction. Stewart started off before noon on the 13th, and as he rode toward Catlett's Station, he unknowingly placed himself in a position between the two moving columns of the Army of the Potomac, that is, Kilpatrick's and Gregg's Union Cavalry and the infantry of the 2nd and 3rd Corps west of the railroad, and 1st, 2nd, and 5th Corps, as well as Buford's horsemen, moving up the line of the Orange and Alexandria itself. Jeb Stewart found himself caught in a bad spot, trapped between the two federal columns, 
and in fact ended up having to hide out with the brigades with him in some woods outside the village of Auburn, very near Governor K. Warren's 2nd Corps. At dawn on Wednesday, October 14th, Robert E. Lee ordered Ewell's Corps to march to Stewart's rescue. At 6 a.m., Ewell's leading division, under Major General Robert Rhodes, came in contact with the Federal 2nd Corps Division, commanded by Brigadier General John C. Caldwell and some of Gregg's Union cavalry west of Auburn. At the same time, from the woods just east of the village, where the rebel cavalry had hidden through the night, Jeb Stewart ordered his horse artillery to shell Caldwell. The Yankees were taken by surprise to find a previously undiscovered rebel cavalry force was so near, but they responded with an attack on Stewart's position by Brigadier General Alexander Hayes' 2nd Corps Division. Stewart then ordered a successful breakout through the Union lines to the southeast. As Stewart slipped away on the other side of the village, Ewell's other two divisions, led by Jubal Early and Allegheny Johnson, arrived on the scene and deployed, joining Rhodes' division. Caldwell found himself having to hold his ground at Auburn and fend off three Confederate divisions, while the rest of the 2nd Corps' infantry and the Corps' wagon train made good their escape toward Catlett's station. Fortunately for Caldwell, the Confederates had been tasked with rescuing Jeb Stewart, and once that mission was accomplished, although there was some sharp fighting at Auburn, the rebels didn't press home their assault. Instead, after four hours of fitful combat, both sides broke off the engagement and went on their respective ways. The Federals of Warren's 2nd Corps headed for Catlett's Station and then Bristow Station, farther up the line of the Orange and Alexandria, while Ewell's Confederates marched to Greenwich, west of the railroad. While Ewell's Confederates clashed with the Yankees at Auburn on the morning of the 14th, A.P. Hill, with Fitz Lee's cavalry in the lead, marched his three infantry infantry divisions east on the Warrenton and Alexandria Turnpike, moving toward the line of the railroad and pushing withdrawing elements of the Federal Third Corps before him until the retreating Yankees outpaced their pursuers. At mid-morning, near Buckland Mills, Fitz Lee's rebel cavalry ambushed and then engaged in a series of running fights with Kilpatrick's Union horsemen, who had been assigned to block any Confederate attempt to proceed east along the turnpike. The rebel troopers scattered and pursued Kilpatrick's Yankees, and thus became separated from Ewell's infantry. This was important because it meant Fitz Lee's rebel cavalry went off after the fleeing Federal horsemen and weren't screening the advance of A.P. Hill's infantry as the Confederate foot soldiers approached Bristow Station. And, as we'll see, the absence of cavalry at Bristow Station would be crucial to what transpired there. (music) 
By noon on the 14th, most of the Army of the Potomac and its enormous wagon trains were at Centerville, near the old Bull Run battlefield, and so were safely out of Robert E. Lee's reach. The sole exception was the Federal Army's rear guard, which was composed of Warren's 2nd Corps and Gregg's Union Cavalry. They were just departing Catlett's Station and heading toward Bristow Station, eight miles up the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Warren marched along the rail line with Brigadier General Alexander Webb's division and two batteries of artillery on the north side of the tracks, while Hayes' division marched on the south side. Caldwell's division, which had been the last to withdraw from Auburn, followed along on both sides of the tracks, along with a Corps' wagon train. David McMurtry Gregg's horsemen shielded the marching infantry, with Colonel John Taylor's brigade screening Warren's left, guarding against any Confederate approach from the west, while Colonel Urban Gregg's brigade took up a rearguard position. About 1 p.m., Warren's nearest support, Sykes' 5th Corps, had just pulled back over Broad Run Creek, two miles to the north of Bristow Station, since Sykes mistakenly believed Warren was out of danger of being cut off. But, in fact, at that time, A.P. Hill's Confederate infantry were closer to the Broad Run crossing than Warren was. A.P. Hill, seeing the last of Sykes' Federals crossing over to the other side of the creek, decided to attack at once. With no rebel cavalry on hand to scout the area, and with only his lead unit, Major General Harry Heath's division, on hand, Hill nevertheless was determined to immediately strike the withdrawing Yankees across the way. Hill ordered Heath to deploy into line of battle, facing Broad Run, about half a mile north of Bristow Station. Brigadier General John Cook's brigade of North Carolina regiments formed on the right, with Brigadier General W.W. Kirkland's North Carolinians to Cook's left. Cook's brigade had missed Gettysburg, while Kirkland's brigade was the fallen Johnston Pettigrews. Brigadier General Henry Walker's small 700-man brigade was ordered to move up and form on Kirkland's left, while Heath kept Brigadier General Joseph Davis's brigade in reserve. Heath's troops formed in line of battle facing Broad Run between 1.30 and 2 o'clock that afternoon. By around 2 p.m., A.P. Hill had about 4,700 men in position to assault what he believed was the Federal Third Corps, but was in reality the tail end of Sykes' Fifth Corps. Not long after A.P. Hill gave Harry Heath the order to advance his line of battle toward Broad Run, a column of troops was seen approaching the Confederate right flank. Perhaps remembering what happened the first morning at Gettysburg, when he had ignored Pettigrew's warnings and blundered into Buford's Federal cavalry, Heath, here, prudently halted his advance and sent a messenger to Hill with the news. However, A.P. Hill didn't seem to have learned anything from that experience at Gettysburg because, rather than have Heath investigate and discover the identity of the unknown force, Hill instead ordered his subordinate to continue his advance. Hill seems to have assumed the mystery soldiers were the leading elements of the next unit from his corps that was coming up, 
that is, Major General Richard Anderson's division. However, the mystery soldiers coming up on the Confederate right, right flank weren't friendly troops from Anderson's division. Instead, they were Federals, the leading elements of Warren's II Corps, to be exact. Yep, you see, as he rushed to quickly throw Heath's troops across Broad Run, A.P. Hill was totally unaware the enemy 2nd Corps was approaching Bristow Station. And Hill's impulsivity and complete failure to properly scout the area were about to cost his men dearly. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is A Want of Vigilance, The Bristow Station Campaign, October 9th through 19th, 1863, by Bill Backus and Robert Orison. Backus and Orison's book is part of the Emerging Civil War series, and like all the titles in that series, it's well worth picking up and adding to your Civil War library. Don't forget, you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade and supporting the podcast in that way. Just this past week, we released members episode 143, which was titled Surviving the Lottery of Death and tells the story of Captain Henry Sawyer, who, as a prisoner of war in Richmond's Libby Prison, was chosen by lot to be killed in retaliation for the execution of a couple of Confederate officers captured in Kentucky. We hope the members of the Strawfoot Brigade enjoyed that episode, including the newest members, Anthony S., Lucas K., Michael T., and Caltone. We also want to say thank you to Angela C. for her donation. As the curtain comes down on this episode, we'll just remind you that the wonderful music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.